Greetings and salutations. This is the Accelerated Culture Podcast, the rise of alternative music in the 80s and beyond. In this podcast, we aim to walk through an often ignored bit of music history. My co-host Trey and I will explore how new waves stormed the airwaves in the early 80s and gave way to the rise of alternative music. Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I'm Lori. And I'm Trey. And Trey, you have very kindly let me pick the subject for this episode because I I pulled the It's My Birthday card. Indeed, you did. (laughs) Yeah, so my birthday is in a few days on November 9th, and um, also kind of coincides with the release of a new CD box set, which I believe is, is it November 11th or November 18th? I keep forgetting it too. It's right. It's all over the place and I keep reading about it and I, I can't remember any of the details. Right. So there is a new box set of songs from John Hughes films. It's called, you couldn't forget me if you tried. And it's like a compilation of the best of the songs from John Hughes movies. So my birthday CD release, I thought, you know what, let's do an episode on the influence that John Hughes has had on 80s music. Happy early birthday, first of all. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That makes you the first. Well, there you go. You you know what I keep wondering is how on earth they got the right style this music for that set. That must have been a monumental task. For the box set? Yeah. Well, and it's notable in some of the absences, too, which I'm sure we're going to talk about as well. So in preparation for this, Trey, and you were kind of laughing at me over the weekend because I hadn't seen some of these movies. Some of them I had, but some of them I'd never seen before because I had a very sheltered childhood. My family would not allow me to watch anything that was rated R. And, you know, yeah, there were a few PG-13s in there, but a lot of the John Hughes films, probably for like salty language ended up being rated r and so i was never really allowed to watch them none of the teen ones were r rated breakfast club was breakfast club was oh it was i'm sorry and long story short i mean i'd seen some of these but i i never had reason to go back and watch some of them you know so this weekend was kind of my initiation into specifically the molly ringwald era of John Hughes films. And so I was kind of texting you as I was watching them. And then there's one movie that I haven't seen that I'm waiting on. And that's your favorite. Some kind of wonderful. Some kind of wonderful. I was going to watch it, but then you came up with this idea that we should like live stream or live live tweet when I'm watching it to get my reactions. I think that's an excellent idea. I think it'd be very cool. So we got to figure out how and when we're going to do that. We will do that eventually. So you guys can uh, can watch as I pop my some kind of wonderful cherry, I guess. <laughs> I like it better than Pretty in Pink. It, it's it's essentially the exact same plot, but it's it's yeah 
It's got cooler people and cooler music in it, if you ask me. All right. Well, hold that thought because we are still going to talk about that film today. All right. So before I go on my rant about John Hughes and his impact on music, do you have anything you want to say to start us off? You know, he certainly had his finger on the pulse with, you know, all the new wave and alternative rock that was going on in the 80s. And I think he definitely helped a lot of these bands out. And sold them some records in excess new water the name too for sure got a whole lot more attention because of him he was actually a fan of all this stuff too so, mm-hmm. so you live in chicago and he was notable for being a customer wax tracks <laughs> wax tracks records there i go mm-hmm. well you know i think it's interesting most of the the songs that he chose the the new wave songs now i'm not talking about you know like try a little tenderness or talking about twist and shout or any of the oldies right but the the more contemporary music that he chose wasn't popular until after it was in the film so it's not a case of well this is a teen movie and this is what the teens are listening to so let's put this in here it was more uh, you know, this is this is the music that I like that I think matches the the mood and the energy of the movie. Right. And a lot of times it was music that we hadn't heard over here in the United States. So it's not that the songs were in a John Hughes film because they were popular. It's that they were popular because we heard them in John Hughes films. Exactly. Very often I was reading, you know, stories of like Anthony Michael Hall and, and Molly Ringwald in them where between takes John Hughes would be playing music for them and be mm-hmm. saying, Hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? Molly Ringwald credits John Hughes with basically teaching her all about the Beatles. Yep. He was really very much like a, a music aficionado mm-hmm. and really kind of had his finger on the pulse of, I think the younger generations, there were topics in these movies that we really hadn't seen dealt with in movies before. And we'll, we'll talk about that as well in the, the impact of these movies, but the music kind of almost was another character in these movies. You know what I mean? The, the music becomes so essential to many of these films that it's hard to imagine, you know, it's hard to imagine Breakfast Club without Don't You Forget About Me. Just like it would be hard to imagine Breakfast Club without John Bender, right? Exactly. You know, these soundtracks spoke to me because I was discovering all this music at the same time these movies were coming out. Mm -hmm. It almost made me feel like I belonged because here's these, you know, Hollywood productions with these weird bands that I was happening on, you know, being played in the movie. So I was just like, you know, wow, this is great. Somebody else likes this stuff is what I thought, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So he was tapped into the same thing you were right really yeah well shall we get started shall we uh talk about our 20 favorite songs from john hughes films let's go all right so some of these are not on the upcoming box set compilation some of these didn't even make their respective movie soundtrack releases but they were in the film right so for me the john hughes journey starts back in 1983 with National Lampoon's Vacation. We don't always think of this as a John Hughes film, but John Hughes did write it. Right. The song from this movie, obviously, 
I, I think it brings a smile to my face every time I hear it. Holiday Road by Lindsay Buckingham. this is a great song and people always find it odd but i am a fan of fleetwood mac oh i love fleetwood mac oh my gosh stevie nicks yes life goals people always give me the weirdest looks when i see me listening to them and hear me talking about them they're like you you like them i'm like how can i not how can you be a goth and not like stevie nicks i mean that's like elder goth music you know exactly what i say (laughs) You ever really looked closely at Stevie Nicks there? Right? (laughs) I didn't realize the song was actually by Lindsey Buckingham until like maybe 20 years later, I'm embarrassed to say. Well, it doesn't really... I mean, yeah, he's got a very distinctive voice, and I guess I should have picked up on that sooner. I guess maybe I was a little slow. But, I mean, it doesn't sound like his work with Fleetwood Mac. It has a very different sound to it. All his solo material sounds about like holiday road it was more poppy and no i don't think so at all go insane well it still has that new wavy vibe to it true 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 you know, he was definitely riding that you know trying to ride on that uh popularity of all that with some of the solo work there in the early to mid 80s mm-hmm. but this song i think has just become iconic it's impossible to hear this song and not picture chevy chase and beverly d'angelo in the station wagon you know all I picture when I hear this song is the red Ferrari with uh, Christy Brinkley. You know? Oh, yeah. First thing that comes to my mind. And this was one of Anthony Michael Hall's first roles, too. Yep, it was. He was rusty. Mm-hmm. And that kind of became almost like a running gag is the rusty and I forget his sister's name. Every film they were played by different actors. Yeah. <laughs> I often wonder, was that not intentional? But I guess if actors grew up, so they had no choice but to get a couple of younger ones. I don't know. Well, so Anthony Michael Hall would then end up being cast in the next film that we're going to talk about, which was 1984, 16 Candles. And it was, if I'm not mistaken, John Hughes's directorial debut. It was. And he also wrote it. Right. I didn't see 16 Candles until it came on the HBO because I, I don't think it fared well in theaters. Oh, no. Yeah, HBO got a hold of it and ran it incessantly over the course of 1984. Of course, my mom actually saw it one morning and told me I needed to watch it, how funny it was. And it was, she said, there's some nerdy people like you in it. Speaking of Anthony Michael Hall, he plays Farmer Ted, the geek. Mm -hmm. And there is a very memorable scene at the school dance where he is dancing rather spastically to this song. One of my favorites, Wild Sex in the Working Class by Oingo Boingo. Oh, I may be the 
So it comes as no surprise to listeners of the podcast that I am a big fan of Oingo Boingo. And as early as 1984, Danny Elfman was delving into the soundtrack game. He sure was. Mm-hmm. So what song did you pick for 16 Candles? I picked If You Were Here by the Thompson Twins. Which, of course, plays over the end credits. And in the infamous kissing scene right there, just just before the credits start. I was waiting for somebody's clothing to catch fire. So they're leaning over the birthday cake with all the candles lit. I was just waiting. <laughs> that had to be a fiasco on the set. And you're not the first person I've ever heard point that out. Like, how did her dress there not catch on fire? Yeah. She leans over. It definitely kind of leans down. Maybe it wasn't real fire. Who knows? That's possible. And this one was actually kind of hard for fans to find for a long time, too, because I don't think this was on the soundtrack album. It was not, nor was it released as a single ever. It appears on their uh, Quick Step and Sidekick album, which I'm not sure it even been released in America yet at the time of the soundtrack's release. And they were still a little obscure. They had, they had yet to really hit the charts big time in America. So I think most America, American audiences were kind of going, who are these guys? This song is great. I remember trying to find it and couldn't find it anywhere. Right. So I watched this film again for the first time over the weekend. So the first thing that struck me is that this whole thing takes place over basically 48 hours. Yep. And there's a lot that goes on in that short time. There were a couple of things that really stood out to me, though. So one of them was in. Is it Andy? Is that her name? No, Samantha. Mm-hmm. I'm getting the movies confused. It's so, Samantha. Yeah. So in Samantha's room, she's got some posters up on the wall. I think I saw like a I think I saw like a Duran Duran or a culture club mm-hmm. where, you know, it's actually decorated the way a, a teenager's bedroom would be decorated. And she had written on her notebook. And I think I texted you about this. Apparently, it was Molly Ringwald's favorite band at the time, the Rave Ups. Yep. And we're going to talk about them a little bit later in this episode. So it's more than just the music being part of the soundtrack. I think John Hughes really recognized that the music was also a part of teens' lives. And you see that reflected in the props, in the, the scenery. Music was certainly a big part of my teen years. I mean, that was all I cared about. Same. Absolutely. You know, when you find some band or, or some album that you just identify with to your core, right. you know, and especially with some of these alternative rock bands that I was getting to, into that no one else around me was listening to. It was like I had some special secret that nobody else knew about. You know, nobody else knew how great this music was. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It was like your thing. Right. And when you found somebody else 
that happened to be listening to the same obscure band, you know, they had a t-shirt or maybe they had it scribbled on their notebook and you're like, right. I want to meet this person, you know? Exactly. We- you were instantly friends with them. I'm like, oh no, you like this man? And then it would just turn into a 20 minute conversation of, oh, you like them too? Oh, I love them. You know, that type of thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think he really captured well in this film was the school dance. <laughs> and man, it felt so much like, my school dances, you know, down, down to the, the scenery. You know, one last thing, speaking of the school dances, though, I did notice that one of the songs, the song that Jake and his girlfriend are slow dancing to is True by Spandau Ballet. Yep. And this is the one exception to the rule, I think, where that song actually was already popular before he put it in the film. I was going to say that was a hit at that point in time, wasn't it? Yes, yes. So to me, that was accurate. You know, I could see some teenagers dancing to that at a school dance. As much as I love Oingo Boingo, there is no school administrator in the United States that would have allowed (laughs) wild sex in the working class to be played at a school dance. Yeah, you you definitely have a point there. That's that's. I I would say it was a dark song, but it definitely deals with some uh, risque subject matter. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It's even funnier to see Anthony Michael Hall uh, (laughs) dancing to it the way he did. You know, the thing is with this movie is everything that happened in it happened to me at some point in my high school years. Oh, exactly. Except except for waking up with a woman. That didn't happen until I was in my (laughs) 20s, but, you know. Well, you know, the forgetting the 16th birthday that did happen to me. That didn't happen to me, but just the 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 antics and the and the just the nerdy guys and because I was a little nerdy like that and and then the preppy kids and ending up at a wild party and being totally out of place that that's all stuff I went through. Okay, all right. Well, and then I guess I went through the more uh, Samantha type stuff, but yeah, my 16th birthday. So I did have a big. 16th birthday party planned with friends but that wasn't until the weekend after my birthday and it, I I was going through my goth phase so of course I had black roses on my cake I had black <laughs> balloons you know but the day of my birthday yeah nobody in my family remembered it was my birthday and it was kind of you know it, it trying not to be you know over dramatic about it or anything but yeah when you're 16 that's kind of a gut punch so I found that relatable. I had just gotten my first ever girlfriend okay. when I was 16. So it, it was a big deal. My parents threw me a party and she was there. And I mostly got records. All right. I got a All whole right. lot of Cure stuff because I had just gotten into them and was, you know, scouring the ends of the earth for whatever I could get by them. Most of these films, by the way, took place in a fictitious illinois town called Shermer, illinois yep and if you've ever seen the kevin smith movie dogma that actually kind of plays a little bit of a part in the plot of that movie because jay and silent bob decide they're going to travel to Shermer, illinois only to find that it doesn't exist exactly that was a pretty funny part of that movie so Shermer was very loosely based on some of the more well-to-do suburbs uh actually highland park i think was one of them and of course unfortunately we very recently had a mass shooting yeah. here in highland park at the fourth of july parade so it's not all uh, white picket fences and uh, big mcmansions 
But John Hughes grew up in this area. So he based a lot of the locations in his films on areas in and around Chicago. Mm -hmm. So next up is 1985's The Breakfast Club. Oh, this is a good one. So this is the, the trifecta, I guess, for John Hughes, because he wrote it, directed it, and produced it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the, the hit from this movie is Don't You Forget About Me by The Simple Minds, which mm -hmm. I'm actually a pretty decent fan of The Simple Minds. I've got a lot of their albums. They're a great band, but I am so tired of this song because it's just gotten... I think I've said this in another episode about another band, but radio, you know, the yeah. classic rock radio and the, the, you know, 80s radio stations have absolutely ran it into the ground. But it's a great song. Well, I'm glad you at least agree it's a great song because that's the one that I picked for this episode. I know you didn't pick one from this film. So I'm going to play a little bit of it, but I'm not going to play the Simple Minds version. Oh, you're yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm going I'm to mix it up a little bit. So let me tell you a little bit about this song in particular. I think this is the first song that comes to mind whenever anybody says John Hughes. And much of the music for The Breakfast Club was written specifically for the film yep. by a guy named Keith Forsey. Now, he was previously known for writing the song Flashdance, What a Feeling. So he's worked on movie soundtracks before. His other claim to fame at this time was that he was Billy Idol's producer. So the song was originally called Won't You Forget About Me, but they changed it to Don't You Forget About Me because they felt that it tied in better with the ending of the film when the members of the Breakfast Club are going their separate ways. So originally the plan was this was going to be recorded by Billy Idol since Keith Forsey produced him, but Billy Idol passed. Then they brought it to Brian Ferry and something happened where they were like supposed to have a meeting with Brian Ferry about it. And then Brian Ferry's father died. So that meeting never happened. So that never got recorded. And then it got offered to a few other bands. I think I heard the Eurythmics were involved in there and then eventually got offered to Simple Minds. And Simple Minds turned it down initially yeah. because they only record their own songs, at least at the time. Right. Right. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. And Jim Kerr, the lead singer of Simple Minds, at the time he was married to Chrissy Hind of The Pretenders. Mm -hmm. And Chrissy Hind actually talked Jim Kerr into recording it. Yep. It ended up being their biggest hit ever. Well, it for sure broke them in this country. Yeah, absolutely. So Billy Idol finally did release it as part of his greatest hits album in 2001. I remember buying that when it came out. Yeah. So I would like to play a little bit of the Billy Idol version, if you don't mind, since everybody I think is familiar with the Simple Minds version. So, so here's Billy Idol singing, Don't You Forget About Me. I'll get us back together at heart, Don't you forget about me.
almost think I like that version better, but please don't tell Jim Care. I did. I liked it better too. The first time I ever heard it when I got that, I didn't know it was going to be on that compilation. Right. So when I saw it, I was like, why is he, he put a cover of that on there and he opened it up and read the liner notes and it tells you the little story behind it, which I didn't know up until then. I'm not, was that kind of a guarded secret up until that point? You know, I don't know if he'd actually recorded it until 2001. I really don't. I don't know. I, I, if he did, there may have been a demo at one time, but I don't think it was recorded prior to that. I could be mistaken. So let's talk about the movie, Trey. I think, again, this is probably the most iconic of the John Hughes films. So the entire film takes place in a Saturday morning detention. I think at the time when this was first pitched to the movie studio, I don't think they thought it was going to work because it was a bunch of teenagers sitting around in four walls. There's no changes of no changes of location. There's no real action. It's all dialogue based. I don't think that the movie studios thought this was going to work, but it ended up being absolutely brilliant. I think it worked very well. It was, it was like you just said, it was brilliant. And it was really kind of a breakdown of the different, the different cliques in Mm -hmm. in high school and and you know how they do or don't interact with each other i mean every person in the detention was a stereotype right you've got the brain you've got the jock you've got the bad boy the princess the basket case right every single one of them was was intended to be a stereotype but it becomes very interesting when you see the interaction between these characters and how they start to relate to each other and find that they do actually have some things in common over the course of this Saturday detention. I mean, the thing is, you know, that's what teenagers did back then as a, you know, sat around and talk, that's talking on the phone, talking to each other in class, passing notes. And even if you put five completely different teenagers in a room back then, of course, at first they weren't going to get along, but eventually they were going to open up to each other and, like you said, realize they do have things in common. You know, I actually did serve Saturday detention. I don't remember it ever being like that. We were not allowed to talk. There was somebody in the front of the room. You were supposed to work on schoolwork or read a book. My detentions weren't that interesting at all. (laughs) We didn't have Saturday school here. We had ISS. In school suspension? Yes. And you had to go in this room and sit in a cubicle. So you literally couldn't Mm. see anyone. If you even poked out, like, you know, you'd get an eraser thrown at you. Oh, so that's kind of like solitary confinement almost, huh? It only ever happened to me once. And I got out of it after one day. Well, the casting of this film, you know, we're starting to see some familiar faces here. So we've got Anthony Michael Hall again. And he's starting to be a little bit typecast. You know, this is like two movies in a row where he's playing like a geek or a nerd. And I think for a long time, he really was. No, three, I guess, because Rusty from National Lampoon's Vacation, I guess, would kind of have been two. So that's three. Man, he grew up to be a hottie, though. I mean, like back when he was on the series, The Dead Zone. Oh, my gosh. It's like, I can't believe this is the same guy. Remember his short tenure on Saturday Night Live there in the mid 80s? I do. I don't know that that uh, sketch comedy was really his thing. He's a good actor. I don't know that that was the good fit for him. 
Yeah, he didn't he didn't he didn't gel well with that. And I believe he himself even says that nowadays. Like that just wasn't a mm -hmm. wasn't a very good idea. I think he said as even his mother was against him doing it. Oh yeah. Well, and then the other one we see again is Molly Ringwald. So this is the second film that she's in. And she kind of became, I guess, John Hughes's muse. Supposedly, before he ever cast her in 16 Candles, he had seen her performance in, I don't remember, some kind of Shakespeare or something. And I was say it was a play, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and he had a, a picture of her as he was writing uh, the part of Samantha and 16 candles. Then he was looking at this picture of her, mm -hmm. which in 2022 could kind of be interpreted as maybe being a little bit creepy and stalkerish for an older man to be doing. But, you know, I think at the time everybody thought it was charming. She had such a unique appearance that she could go either way. She could be mm -hmm. like a preppy kid or she could have been like an alternative rock kid. I mean, all they had to do was throw some different clothes on her. She just had right. such a, such a, a good look about her. Right. So of the five, which is the, the character that you most related to? I'm curious. You know, that's a hard one to call because I had elements of Bender and uh, Anthony Michael Hall's character in myself at that period of time. Okay. So you were kind of the brain and the bad boy? Exactly. Well, I wasn't yeah. exactly bad, but he kind of had a punk rock look about him a little mm -hmm. there. And that's right when I was getting into all this stuff. And yeah. If you look really closely, he's wearing a madness pin on his lapel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now that seemed a little off to me because he was what we would have characterized in high school as a burnout yeah. and the burnouts would not be listening to ska pop, but I still, it's fun to kind of pause and be like, oh my gosh, that's a madness pin. Oh, the burnouts down here are in the rush. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. And heavy metal. But uh, yeah, for me, it was, it was definitely Ali Sheedy's character, the basket case. I even had friends that's who'd, who'd seen the movie and said, oh my gosh, this is you. Was she supposed to be a goth or what was going on with her? Well, she did wear a lot of black, had black hair, black eyeliner. They don't explicitly call her that. They call her the basket case, you know, and she's very quiet for the first part of the movie. She's got very emotive expressions on her face, even though she doesn't say anything, right. she, she says everything. You know what I mean? This is another one that I didn't see until later. Now, I got to tell you the story behind this because it's so ridiculous. Nobody ever believes me. In seventh grade, my homeroom teacher was named Miss Becker. And there was something, I don't remember what it was. There's because there was my homeroom and there was the other homeroom. There were two homerooms. And they we switched classes. So, you know, Miss Becker would have the other homeroom for part of the day and, and whatnot. And my class had done something that she just thought was misbehaving. I don't even remember what it was. So we were supposed to have a movie day on a Friday. And the other class got to choose their movie and they chose the breakfast club. My class, we were being punished. So we didn't get to choose our movie. So she chose Amadeus, oh. which ironically was not that bad. You know, I, I, I didn't hate it. It's got its moments for sure. So, but I came home and, and I was not being allowed to watch the breakfast club because it is rated R. And I said to my mother, you know, the other seventh grade class, they got to watch it in class. And she thought I was lying. She did not believe me because no Catholic school teacher would show an R-rated movie to a seventh grade class. That is a bit. I'm not so sure a seventh grade class should have watched that, but hey. 
well, I don't, uh, this was a younger teacher who I don't think really knew better, but then I finally did get to see it as part of a church youth group. (laughs) And Deacon White would pause and, you know, say, your morality is under attack at this point. You know, let's, let's talk about this, but at least I got to see the movie. Well, there you go. (laughs) Wow. That's pretty interesting right there. Oh boy. What else? Is there anything else about, about uh, breakfast club that we need to go into? At the time it was his biggest hit. Well, I don't know about in terms of like dollars. I don't know, but top of mind, if you stop 20 people on the street and you ask them to name a John Hughes film, 19 of them are going to say the breakfast club. I think Pretty and Pink fared a little better financially, but okay, definitely right. That's a, that's a, the movie everybody goes to when you bring him up. All right. So then also the same year as The Breakfast Club, 1985, John Hughes put out a second film, which also had Anthony Michael Hall in it. <laughs> it's called Weird Science. <laughs> and this was written and directed by John Hughes. I will always love it for the iconic opening song, Weird Science by Oingo Boingo. Trey, you know the story about this song? I do not. Okay, well, John Hughes called Danny Elfman and said, hey, I'm doing a movie called Weird Science. I need you to write a song. So Danny Elfman, after he hangs up the phone, he gets in the car, he's driving home to Los Angeles, and the song just kind of comes to him. He says he heard the whole thing in his head. Oh, wow. And by the time that he got home, he went to his home studio and recorded the demo. I mean, it was just like, sometimes you hear stories about composers, musicians, where it's like, it almost seems like a song is being downloaded from Mm -hmm. on high. And I think this is like one of those. Love the song. It is so perfect for Oingo Boingo for their kind of uh, kooky kind of vibe that they're setting up. So this is a absolutely fantastic, fantastic theme song. I think this is kind of when the Wingo Boingo sort of took a step out of sky and got more into, I don't know what you'd call a Wingo Boingo, but they definitely took a turn with this song and album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. A little more mainstream. And right. then they, they would also go on to do uh, another song that year for Back to School. Indeed, they did. Yes. So what song did you choose from Weird Science, Trey? I chose Method of My Madness by Lords of the New Church.
which is used it's in the in the motorcycle scene when the the mad max looking people show up to the party and and disperse the the preppy kids okay get rid of them that's my favorite scene in the movie i don't know why i just always thought that was hilarious and the and the gritty beat you know this song's really a bit of a gritty song for lords of the new church kind of kind of out of left field for them and i always felt like it just suited that scene so well at, at this point in time i had no idea who in the world they were mm-hmm. i remember thinking that was a what a weird name for a band you know i still don't know anything about them i don't think i've heard of them but it kind of came to an untimely end there in 1990 when their singer Steve baders was killed in a car accident oh that was that was Steve baders band right right Oh, did he have another band? I believe he was in a couple of different bands there in the late 70s, early 80s. And I, I think he left Lords of the New Church circa 87, 88 and was in some other band. And then Lords of the New Church had gotten back together. There was this oh, one of those big kind of branching stories like that. Yeah, because he was he was really big in the like CBGB scene, wasn't mm-hmm. he? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I might cut that out because I feel silly there. <laughs> we'll feel silly. You're learning we'll something new. Yeah. All right. Anything else you want to say about that one, or should I go to my next song from Weird Science? Because I your next song from Weird Science. <laughs> okay. So I got Grady Trey. I picked two. That's fine. The other one I picked from Weird Science was Tenderness by General Public. Right. I went back and forth on this because this also gets used in the movie Sixteen Candles as well. It does indeed. So general public, as you know, Trey, was Dave Wakeling and ranking Roger of the English Beat. Right. And it also included former members of Dexie's Midnight Runners, The Specials, and The Clash. And this was arguably their biggest hit. And this is, again, one of those songs that just puts me in a fantastic mood every time I hear it. I myself never got big into these guys. No. Not at all. This is the only one that I really like by them. I saw um, Dave Wakeling and the English Beat a few years back, and he also played this song, and the crowd just went nuts. So the movie Weird Science, (laughs) weird doesn't even begin to describe it. Oh, my gosh. You know, again, this movie really hit home with me because of the home computer. And I had a Commodore 64 at the time, which I was huge, huge into. So this just, I was just like, oh, wow, this is great. And plus, again, with the cool music, you know. As much as I love a lot of John Hughes movies, this one was just stupid. It was just stupid. (laughs) Well, this was for sure aimed at teenage boys. So I can see where you would say that. Yeah. I mean, it was full of hot chicks, farts. Bill Paxton, didn't he turn into like a giant turd or something? (laughs) 
this whole thing. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there was in 85, there was like a weird trend of teen science movies. So there was this one. Oh, there, there was My Science Project with Fisher Stevens. You remember that one? Of course. That one actually I did kind of like. And there was a third one. There I'm was Explorers. To... Oh, was that? Which was that? that? Yeah, that was 85. Yeah, oh. and there was also Young Sherlock Holmes, which had a more of a science fiction-y science feel to it than your traditional Sherlock Holmes story. Yeah. So you're right about that. That's interesting. Interesting thing to notice there. You know, weird, weird fads come and go. And that just seemed like that was the weird fad. Oh, and um, what about um, Real Genius? Oh, my gosh. I think that was a bit earlier, was it not? That was 85, too. OK, that was Val Kilmer. That's a great movie. That popcorn scene. Uh-huh. How could really? I not? Uh, how could I forget that one? That is by far the best of the bunch. That was one of those ones that did nothing in theaters. And like I just said about uh, 16 Candles, it did nothing in theaters. And then HBO got it and turned it into a hit. Oh, Val Kilmer was absolutely dreamy in that movie. Yeah, I know a lot of ladies that liked him back then. Yeah. All right. Anything else that we want to say about Weird Science? I think that about covers it for that one. Okay, because now we're going to move on to Pretty in Pink. So next up, we have 1986's Pretty in Pink. Now, this one was written by John Hughes, and it was executive produced by him, but it was not directed by him. Howard Dutch. How do you, is it Howard Dutch? Deutsch. Howard Deutsch directed this one. Yes. And I understand there was some tension between Howard Deutsch and John Hughes at some point over the making of this film. Yes, definitely over the flow of it, the course of it. I'm not so sure how Howard Deutsch cared for the... Uh, post-punk music that John Hughes was wanting to use in the movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cause he was a little bit more mainstream, wasn't he? Right. It? Right. I've heard yeah. they went into the same issues when they were making uh, some kind of wonderful. Well, you know, it's ironic because I think out of all the John Hughes films that we're going to talk about, I think that the music for pretty in pink is arguably the best out of all of them. Oh, he for sure hit a stride with this one. Yeah. So the first song that I picked from this film, Trey, of course, I have to pick In Excess. You know, I left that one just for you. Oh, thank you. So it's Do What You Do, but it's spelled W-O-T. lot about this song there's not a lot written about it in right. any of the biographies or anything i did happen to see though that a copy of michael's original lyrics on a sheet of notebook paper uh, was sold in, on ebay in 2012 and it was spelled trey w-h-a-t's i don't know why it changed but uh michael hutchins he that was his habit I and mean, he would just 
scribble lyrics in a notebook. I always figured it was just an outtake from Listen Like Thieves. And this one, you know, this this movie was in production when they were in the midst of the Listen Like Thieves tour. Mm. So they probably didn't have time to do anything. And they just went, okay, cool. Here you go. Here's here's this. This is not included in that CD box set, which kind of bummed me out. Hmm. So what song did you pick from Pretty in Pink, Trey? I picked Positively Lost Me by the Rave Ups. Greenwald's favorite band at the time they were a Los Angeles band and they're another band that there's not a whole lot of info about out there they still reunite periodically and play one-off shows in the greater Los Angeles area you know it's worth noting that a lot of the bands that appeared on the soundtrack they did not appear on the actual you know physical soundtrack that you could go to the store and buy but a lot of the other bands saw an increase in sales due to this movie OMD New Water NXS was doing very well at the time, and I'm sure this didn't hurt them at all. But this, you know, it really didn't get the rave ups any, gain them any steam, which is kind of sad. And I'm, I'm probably the point of having them in the movie was to do that for them. Yeah, they actually performed in the movie as well. Right, right. And you can get the, the album this appears on is on YouTube, and you can, you know, you can listen to it. And I've listened to it a few times, and it's an okay album. It's very unfocused. That's how I felt about it. The times I've, I've played it. Me and my ex-wife looked it up one night and played it mm-hmm. some years ago. And it was, you know, really, really good songs. And a few of them, you're just kind of meh. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned New Order. And mm-hmm. there are actually three New Order songs in the film. Yes. But only one of them occurs on the soundtrack. Right. In the film, there's Shell Shock which is on the soundtrack. There's the instrumental song, Allegia. And there's Thieves Like Us. One of my faves by them. I live my life in the valleys. I live my life on the hills. I live my life on Cajon. I live my life on
oh man, you know, we're going to have to do an entire episode about New Order. For sure. There was so much off of their Substance 1987 album that formed a soundtrack for a very important part of my life. Oh, me too. That, that compilation just, mm-hmm. I played that thing into the ground and back. Yeah. Thieves Like Us, uh, in if I'm not mistaken, again, because I watched this movie for the first time over the weekend, isn't this where she's getting the idea to put together a prom dress? Yep. Right. So, so Andy, the main character, she sews all her own clothes. I, I, I was really... I was impressed with the use of these three songs in, in the film. I think they, they did a really good job to create the mood. I really had a hard time even limiting it down to the two songs that I chose from this film, because I mean, we've got Echo and the Bunnymen in there, which, you know, I love mm-hmm. Andy works in a record store. And so anytime you have a movie set in a record store, whether it's this or empire records or, high fidelity or whatever there's always an opportunity for lots of good music yes and he really slipped some in there so one of the things that i texted you after i watched this because i remember in a previous episode you had said that that was filmed at wax tracks here in chicago it definitely was not wax tracks that did not did not look like wax tracks so that was actually i found out uh filmed in santa monica yeah at the third street promenade 1460 now apparently it's no longer a record store now it's the broadway bar and grill yep but it was inspired by wax tracks in chicago and as a matter of fact the record store in the film is called tracks yep so that's a little bit of an homage i think to wax tracks apparently they supplied all the records and such that appear in the store in the movie oh okay did you read that article i sent you um Let's say yes. <laughs> I didn't. I'm sorry. <laughs> For some strange reason, they couldn't use the actual Rax Tracks uh, record store in the movie. There was something going on the day of that they would have shot there and they couldn't do it. So, so they went all the way to California. Pretty much. <laughs> so the, gosh, the album that she hands him, and it was an uh, Steve Lawrence. Steve yes, Lawrence. So that's that's a wax tracks album, Steve Lawrence. No, just the material that they, you know, not actual wax tracks records, but the, oh. the merchandise in the store was from stuff they had in the store. Oh, okay. That brings up something I, I never realized that was actually just a normal old record store. Mm-hmm. I figured all I had was like industrial and guy stuff in it. I didn't realize you could go in there and buy just about anything. Mm which is, that is the case, isn't it? Yes. Okay. See, I didn't know that. I thought it was. I never looked, I never looked for anything that, you know, I mean, why, why go there to buy something that you can, you know, why, why go there to buy Bruce Springsteen? Exactly. But I, you know, so, okay. So again, this weekend was my first time ever seeing pretty in pink. The title of the film was inspired by the psychedelic Furs song, which is also Mm -hmm. on the soundtrack. Yep. But the first song actually came first. And I had read somewhere that the first song was actually written about B.B. Buell. I've read that before myself. Yeah. So B.B. Buell was a very famous, <laughs> I hesitate to use the word groupie. What did they call them in almost famous band aids? Band aids. Yeah. Yes. She's Liv Tyler's mother. Right. And she's had a few songs that were supposedly written about her. She was romantically linked with a bunch of different musicians. Oh, yeah. 
so she kind of was, I guess, the muse that inspired the song. And it's weird because other than the title, Pretty in Pink, if you listen to the lyrics of the song, it has absolutely nothing to do with the film. It's actually not a super flattering song. Not at all. Yeah. But yeah, so I watched it for the first time. I got to say, yes, James Spader plays an asshole, but James Spader was dreamy. He was absolutely dreamy. And oh my gosh, Annie Potts. Oh, she steals (laughs) every every scene she's in. She steals. She's amazing. Yeah. I loved Ducky's clothes. But I think I texted you. uh, I'm like, is Ducky is Ducky supposed to be gay? Because I mean, even though he's hitting on women in the film, he really kind of comes off as like the gay friend, you know? I think he was just supposed to be more eccentric than anything else. That he definitely was. But, you know, I got to say, there was not a single likable character in this whole movie, except for maybe Annie Potts. I didn't like anybody in this movie. This was a really, the, the, the soundtrack was spectacular. The movie was not very good. It is just such a tired, tired, tired old plot. Mm-hmm. But it, it's just, it's just, it's a very unoriginal movie. Well, and then I understand that there was originally another ending that Andy ends up with Ducky. Right. And movie audiences, test audiences booed. Yep. So they actually had to go back and rewrite the ending. Mm-hmm. And I agree, she should have ended up with Blaine. That's the way that, that that was the natural conclusion to that. But by the time that they shot the scene again in the, the, the prom, Andrew McCarthy had already like had his head like shaved or something. So he had to wear a wig and you can tell, <laughs> you can tell it's a wig. There's kind of a little bit of a commentary, I think, about class social class specifically economic class but also social class we saw some some of the commentary about class in breakfast club but here it is not even subtle it's almost like a cinderella kind of story right she finds her rich prince charming Mm -hmm. but she's this poor poor girl who has to sew her own clothes and you know single child of a single father and you know they really kind of play that up where she's so embarrassed. She doesn't even want him to see her house. She, she's embarrassed by where she lives. Right. There are a multitude of forties and fifties romance movies that use the, that trope. Yeah. Almost verbatim plot. Yeah. I guess John was, I mean, there's no way he wasn't looking back on those and, you know, sort of retooling it for the modern era. I mean, it's a good movie, but it's just, you know, it's a one and done for me same same i've seen it i've seen it now i can say i've seen it i never have any urge to watch it again right i I like it the soundtrack got more play out of me than the movie ever has and yeah the soundtrack is absolutely wonderful Mm -hmm. i was gonna say i still remember buying it on cassette and it had the a&m records logo Mm. on the you know on the black part of the cassette box that logo stamped in there i still remember seeing that all right All right, so this actually brings us kind of to the midpoint of our list of our top John Hughes songs. And so we're going to end it here for today. We're going to come back in two weeks and we're going to resume with Ferris Bueller's Day Off. This will make our first uh, two-part episode, won't it, Lori? Oh, it will, yeah. But uh, I suspect we're going to be doing more of these in the future. I have a feeling it's going to happen again, too. Anyways, be sure and tune into the part two, everybody. And thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone that's listening to us.